Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and add a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. I racked my brain for weeks trying to write an intro for this episode, but the truth is the most prominent and honest concern I found myself having is that this will stretch you so far beyond the known and what's comfortable and what's normal that you may forsake your trust and confidence in me as a host and curator of topics. But I want to remind you that this podcast is designed to challenge and provoke without alienating. And I want us to expand our minds and um, enter the, the artful dance of processing new and unusual perspectives while juggling facts and questions, all without feeling intimidated by uh, what's unfamiliar. So today I'm asking you to go further than ever before. I'm asking you to tap into a reality beyond the physical dimension. I recognize that some may automatically negate the message based on its carrier, the terminology, um, or the delivery method. But for those who are willing to see beyond their own limitations, I invite you to do what we say we'll do on Simplexity, and that is have meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. There's something valuable to be learned from every source, and every interaction can sharpen and evolve your current framework. You simply must open your mind and heart. Don't worry. Discernment is welcomed. This is not dogma, but be led by compassion not fear, as you contemplate today. With that said, I'm not going to hold back from here on out. Uh, We'll be talking about the extraordinary as if it's ordinary and the supernatural as if it's natural, because for our guest today, it is. Paul Selig is considered to be one of the foremost conscious channels working today. That means he's recorded an extraordinary program for self-realization and planetary evolution, yet he himself does not take credit for the authorship of any of the books. Instead, the guides, as he's come to identify them, are conveying the message through him, and he's simply a vessel for the teachings. Today, I want to break down several of the primary concepts and how they relate to society, how we can immediately apply them to our lives, Um, but then also dive into the experience of channeling and how we all can develop our extrasensory perception and metaphysical dexterity, so to speak. Who knows? You may just end this podcast with a, a whole new world of insight. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, Our Simplexity family covers a very wide spectrum of demographics and geographies, um, personal histories and opinions. So something that I've really appreciated about the works is that they're very grounded. They're straightforward Mm -hmm. and and they're very digestible. Um, To help us just kind of get acquainted, would you mind sharing a brief autobiography on your uh, professional and personal life leading up to Mm -hmm. your first channeling experience? Well, you know, I was raised something of an atheist. I grew up in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Most of of my childhood was there. And, you know, it was sort of convenient to dismiss any kind of, you know, spiritual practices as for other people. You know, it wasn't how we lived our lives. So 
I wasn't an obvious choice for this work. I was about <laughs> a year out of graduate school at Yale. I was working um, as a playwright. My career was taking off quickly. And I had a list of things that I thought I had to achieved in the world that would make me okay. And I got the entire list and I wasn't okay. And really, mm. you know, out of sheer necessity, not because I thought it would be nice to get spiritual, I I found myself looking for something more. Mm. Um, you know, I was working on an opera and I was um, in St. Paul, Minnesota with the Minnesota Opera and I was billeted at the Gopher Campus Motor Lodge, which had a giant gopher on a spit spinning outside my window. <laughs> Epic. And I was... Uh, you know, sort of in a crisis. And uh, mm. the Gideons leave these little books in the drawers in hotel rooms. And and I took one out and it said, prayer for people in crisis. And I went, well, that's okay. I, I don't know what this is, but I'll say it. And I said it. And I think I meant it. And three days later, I was back in New York City and I woke up and I asked myself what I could do that day that was mm. positive. And I actually heard a voice. Now, wow. it wasn't a voice in the room. When I when I hear clairaudiently, it really is something that comes to the forefront of my mind that blocks out the expected thought, the traditional thought, the thought that's in my own voice hmm. um, and with my own vocabulary, and I listen to it. Hmm. And that was the beginning, and that was, you know, 1987. Um, a few months later, there was this thing happening called the Harmonic Convergence. It was one of those New Agey events, and I heard... <laughs> People are going to be waking up. And I thought, you know, well, if there is something like a God, and I was beginning to think there was something, I didn't know what to call it. And one asked to be woken up. I didn't know why it would want to say no. It mm -hmm. didn't make any sense to me. So I went up to the roof of the building that I lived in and I asked. And um, I ended up having an experience of energy moving through my body. And I didn't know what to think of it. I still don't. Sometimes I think I may just have been hyperventilating. But mm -hmm. people later said it sounded like a spontaneous kundalini awakening or shaktipa. Sure. There were names that other people used. For me, it was an experience of something moving through my body and out through the top of my head that sort of left me frozen on the roof. Hmm. And I, I had been given a mantra and a crystal by two different people, and I thought you needed the props to do these things. Course, and it turns yeah. out one of the, the mantras was, was a kundalini mantra. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what kundalini Surprise, was. Surprise, yeah, it worked. It worked. <laughs> But I started seeing little lights around people after that. That seemed to be a bit of an opening, whether mm -hmm. it was the result of the experience or just coincided with it. Um, I ended up, in order to get a context of what I was beginning to experience, studying a form of energy healing. Okay. And I was volunteering at a center in lower Manhattan that had opened up to provide people um, with life-challenging illness support. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. It was something mm -hmm. that I could do. And I found that when I had my hands on people's bodies, I began to hear things for them. And it was very simple. If I had my hand in your chest and I heard the name Frank, I learned to say, who's Frank? And you'd say, my father, my lover, my son, my dog. Mm. And that would prompt a release of energy. And I started to feel what was going on in other people's bodies as well, which was the beginning of clairsentience. So I began a little group that met in my apartment for 18 years. And wow. I once a week, I would put up some folding chairs and we would sit and the energy would come through. And the energy was extremely palpable, which is what kept me interested. I wasn't interested in the information that was coming through because it was coming through me and who was I. So that was a hmm. very challenging moment for me to begin to speak what I was being told and what I was hearing. 
But I kept it up for a long time, and I kept it up very, very quietly. I was on the faculty of NYU for 25 years. I was running a graduate program at a small college mm -hmm. in Vermont where I'm now on the board of trustees. I mean, I've had this academic, very normal life mm -hmm. that's coincided. I was doing a group in my apartment in 2009 or something like that. And the guides that come through me um, said to somebody in the group, Paul's not going to believe what comes through him until he sees it written down. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't been recording because I didn't want a record of it. I figured if they said something wrong, I would never do it again. You know, I knew mm -hmm. myself well enough. And I, I don't like to hear myself channel. I find it disconcerting. But I did record and transcribe. And shortly after that, they brought through their first book. Um, they brought through three, six, eight now. Seven are in print. The eighth is coming through. Wow. It'll be published in August. And the books are all of the unedited transcripts of these sessions. The first book took two and a half weeks of sessions. Wow. They were transcribed and it was published by Penguin quickly. And, you know, all of the books have been like this. I mean, they'll take maybe a month now because or two I'll to do them over. They're all done publicly now, which is kind of amazing to me. They're done in front of students and workshops. It's another level of transparency for the consumer, which is nice. Well, it's got to be that way. Do you know what I mean? People say, how does it feel to write a channeled book? And I say, well, there's no writing involved. I sit in a chair. I close my eyes. I hear one phrase repeated incessantly until I give it voice. Once I give it voice, everything else tumbles out on top of it. Mm. And the guides will continue speaking or teaching for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Um, and then they'll say, stop now, please. And that's it. Coffee and break. And they'll say it's in the book or this is in the book or this is not in the book. But when they're dictating a book, pretty much everything that they're bringing through is an opportunity for them to progress through these teachings, which seem mm -hmm. to be coming through with real regularity at this point. And for our listeners today, if, they're, if they've never experienced channeling, mm -hmm. what can they expect in the moment? if the guides decide to come through today? Well, if, if I'm channeling and I'm a little odd with this stuff, I whisper the words as they come and repeat. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 a, it's a challenging way of being in delivery, but it's how it comes through me. I often say I'm not the most elegant, um, you know, expression of channeling that's out mm -hmm. there. So when I watch people who do this and they sort of sit back and they're in a lotus position and they're smiling and they're being graceful, I don't know how right. they do it because for me it's a very physical act mm -hmm. and not always very comfortable. You know, if there's early video of me channeling and I'm rocking back and forth incessantly and now it's much easier. But people tend to hear the whispering began um, before I was ever miked. So right. people wouldn't hear and I would have to repeat and it sort of became a way that I worked. Sometimes I work without the repetition. That's challenging for me because then I remember pretty much none of it hmm. and that's spooky. This way at least I'm hearing it and I can question it. And I often do. If the guides come through with an idea that's too far out for me, I've been known to interrupt the teaching. <laughs> and they'll say, Paul is interrupting. They'll most always take the questions, but that happens throughout the workshops that I do, but certainly it happens within the books and the dictation for them. And what is the overall impact on your personal life and development? I mean, you're a, I've heard you say that you're a student of the teachings yourself, yeah. but is this also a heavy burden to carry? 
the the heavy burden for me at times, I suspect, is the expectation hmm. that's placed upon me sure. to be realized. Hmm. And I don't perceive myself as such. I feel that I'm a, a very different man in many ways um, than I was when I began this journey. I know that that's true. Um, so I'm conscious and wary of people wanting to to place their own identifiers on who I am and what I do. I always have to say, you know, I'm not a guru and I'm not a spiritual teacher. I really don't want to be any of those things. Mm -hmm. I consider myself a radio. And when I'm channeling, I'm in broadcast. You know, I'm taking dictation. True channeling, I feel, is stenography. I don't think it's a terribly creative act. If I'm working psychically, mm -hmm. which is something else that I do, um, and the guides support me in this, I'm working differently. So if I were to tune into you and you were to ask a question, say, well, what's going on with me and my mother? And you might give me your mother's name. I might tune into your mother, begin to look like her, and I can hear. But then she's the station that I'm tuning into and playing. Mm -hmm. um, but my primary work is with the guides and just sort of carrying it through. I have questions about the work. Um, I'm, I used to say I'm not their best student and maybe I'm a much better student than I think I am and that that was a way to let myself off the hook for not sure. looking like I think I should or, mm. or presenting as others would have me be. But I had to let go of how I was perceived some time ago with this stuff. It's crazy. And I'm the first one to say this looks nuts. <laughs> and I show up and I do it anyway. Right. I, I do think that's an interesting point. And I grew up in film and television, so in the public eye. And there's um, that pole of the ego self, of course, when you're in, – in your case, you've got to recognize the profundity of channeling higher wisdom, and yet um, you don't want that to turn you into a full-blown narcissist or see yourself as superior in any way. But is there ever the temptation to, you know, use it to your own advantage or, um, uh, I mean, in many cases with spiritual communities, there's a lot of exploitation of uh, mm -hmm. people who are grieving and in need and seeking answers. Well, I'm not a spiritual medium, so I'm not speaking mm. to people that have lost their loved ones. Mm. And the kind of psychic work I do, there's no way to to fake it. You know, if you're challenged in your relationship with your boyfriend, I don't know who your boyfriend is, and I step into him and I say exactly what he said, you know, on your way out the door that morning, you mm -hmm. have your own verification. And that's something that's a fairly common experience. I say about this work, it's yet to get me a date. You know, <laughs> um, it's not solved all my personal problems. It's not giving me those things. This isn't a convenient teaching. And I always have to say that, you know, it's not the teaching. This is the teaching that the guides bring through. It's not the teaching about how to get a better career or to buy a bigger house or have a more attractive spouse. It's not about that at all. It's about the realization of who and what we truly are mm -hmm. beyond the, the identity that we've aligned to, which is really the personality self. And they're doing this in a way that comes with phenomena, which I'm excited by. You can feel the energy. People have large experiences, you know, with the books without me present, certainly. And I'm pleased for that because that 
supports, I guess, the, you know, or, or, or verifies the individual experience of the work, which is really what it's about. I mean, this work has, exists without me at this point, and I'm very happy about that <laughs> because, you know, I just kind of some days just want to live my nice life. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm still surprised that this has happened. You know, I had the worst writer's block on my own of anybody I've ever met in my life. <laughs> the irony of being a playwright. <laughs> it was terrific. I was also, it's also when you're running a graduate program in writing, it's a source of great humiliation. So the fact that I close my eyes now and entire books are spoken through me, <laughs> that somebody else types up and then it goes pretty much right to the publisher for a copy edit. I think there were three words changed in the last manuscript. I just got the copy edited for the newest book and mm. the guides are using a word that is not a word. I think it's the only time it's happened in a book. Like they use the word counterance, which sounds like it should be a word. And of course it's not. And the copy editor is saying contrary, contrary. And I'm going to have to go back and say counterance because that's how it came through. Mm. They've also used words that the copy editors haven't known and actually have been the correct usage of words, you know, in the 1400s. So, you know, I mean, I find that there's an irony in this whole thing, but it's – they're not my words. It's not my book. I'm present for it. I feel a kinship to the work, but I really do have my name on the cover of these things and I don't feel – a sense of ownership at all. Hmm. You were saying it reflected the 1400s vernacular. Is there a certain kind of um, personality behind the guides as in a time and place? I I noticed that some of the teachings um, Mm terminology-wise reflect almost a Judeo-Christian or they use the word Christ, but I think Christ consciousness is probably a a different, it's defined differently than the contemporary evangelical westernized version. There's a man, the man that wrote the introduction to the third book, which was called, um, I think it was the third book, the, the Book of Mastery. No, that was the fourth book. He, um, his name is Jeffrey Kripal, and he's the head right. of the religious studies you know, program at Rice. He's a scholar on Gnosticism. And when he became interested in my work, he was looking at it through that lens of Gnosticism and saying, well, this is a Gnostic teaching. It's it's really Gnostic or mystical Christianity. Hmm. And the guides do use the word Christ, but they define it. And they, they say the Christ is the aspect of the creator that can be realized in material form. It's, you know, the seed that will flower. Hmm. And that seems to be the process that they're engaging us with. Um Victoria Nelson, who's another scholar, and she was on the phone for the first few books because I was on the phone speaking because I can't just speak into a void. Somebody has to be listening. Now there's sometimes, you know, 50 people in the room when the books are coming. But, you know, Vicky knows the Hermetics, which I don't know. And she oh, said great. this is really a Hermetic teaching. She told me this years later hmm. because the guides are talking about form and the divine as form and the realization right. of the body, you know, in a higher expression. Hmm. And that is very much what they're speaking about now. But they talk about, I mean, the word in, in, in sort of common usage these days is ascension. But what they're really talking about is realization and the realization of the inherent divine. They say the divine that must be present in all things in manifestation. And they talk about the kingdom, which is also you know, fraught with Judeo-Christian references, they, t- they speak of the kingdom as the realization of the divine in all manifestation. Hmm. And they're very clear on this concept that they keep 
espousing that, you know, God, or whatever you want to call God, is all things or no thing at all, and you can't exclude anything from it. Right. You know, they say what you put in darkness, who you put in darkness, calls you to that darkness, and that this is all done through co-resonance or through alignment. You know, they say you can't lift the evil man to the upper room, and the upper room they do describe as Christ consciousness because you have made him evil. Hmm. And you, what you damn damns you back. It's really very simple. So, you know, the teaching they say is an old teaching. It's always been here. I suppose that could be true. I don't know. I'm not a scholar. I actually have somewhere on here um, Jeffrey's quote. Uh-huh. And he's – I'll paraphrase. He's essentially saying, you know, this is um, a refraction and um, – some version of many philosophies, and there are so many similar teachings across the board. And that begs the question, why, what barriers are we not able to break through that we're still in such elementary phases Mm -hmm. of uh, development collectively? Why are we not graduating to um, a more highly evolved state of being yet? I mean, I I have what I could say. This is the kind of thing, it's a question that's really beyond Paul, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can go to the guides with this kind of thing and they usually enjoy speaking to them. Um, we would like to. And they're saying we would like to. And if you wish to know, and if you wish to know where your sits, where humanity sits, look in the mirror, look in the mirror and ask yourself if you're one with the source of all things. And ask yourself if you're one with the source of all things. If you know that you are, if you know that you are, you're not excluding anybody, you know that you're not excluding anybody from the divine, from the divine, because you are of and as it, because you are of and as it. You might have decided humanity has decided to operate in separation, to operate in separation. If you wish to continue this way, if you wish to continue this way, of course you may. Of course you may. We'll call it that. But you will call to you that which you claim, which is in separation from one another, which is indeed separation from one another and from the source of all things and from the source of all things. To realize the divine in yourself, to realize the divine in yourself must exclude no one, must exclude no one. You cannot be the light. You cannot be the light and hold another darkness and hold another in darkness. Nor can you be placed. Nor can you decree that another be placed in darkness and maintain the light yourself. And maintain the light yourself. Humanity is at a juncture now. Humanity is at a juncture now. It has great choices to make. It has great choices to make about how it will move forward, about how it will move forward in the way you have. But if you continue in the way that you have, you will have challenges. You will have challenges, many of which you may not overcome, many of which you may not overcome, period. And they're saying, period, say this yes. So they're saying to me, say this yes. So you know, the guides say we're here to learn. You know, they say we're operating in a collective octave. They say it's an octave of expression with high and low notes, but it's the world that we share and how we know things and what things have been named. And they say, you know, we can learn through everything we encounter. They say we can learn the futility of war by blowing ourselves to kingdom come. <laughs> and they're not going to judge it. There's no judgment of that, but it's not necessary. And they say, you know, we have created the means for our own self-destruction. And we've done that, you know, through fear and the belief that a bomb is going to keep us safe. And they say a bomb has never kept anybody safe. It's ludicrous. It's insane. They're actually designed to destroy. So we have opportunity now is what I hear and we're being called to it. And the reclamation of what they call the true self or the inherent divine is an act of of goodness, as far as I can say. It's not about religion. It really isn't. It's about 
not excluding anyone from their right to be mm. on a very fundamental level. I mean, the gods say you don't kill what you know to be holy. And they say you can't make anything holy, but you can deny the holiness in anything. Mm. And they say the only real problem humanity faces is what they call the denial of the inherent divine. Mm. You know, if we not, if we understand that that's what is and that everything that we see is an articulation of one source in vibration and form, we begin to have a very different experience of being. And they also say that we end up lifting what we encounter through co-resonance as you shift your your field in a higher way. In some ways, you become the broadcast of it. And by being the broadcast of it, you're lifting what you encounter to that, and that's through entrainment. That's how right. I understand it. So this – to further simplify and summarize what you're saying, there, there's some vocabulary that mm -hmm. I've heard you use before, the concept of framing and mm -hmm. the concept of collective agreements. Uh-huh. And if you wouldn't mind um, defining those and sure. then talking about some practical examples of mm -hmm. what that looks like in our everyday relationships with family. Uh -huh. um, how can we um, challenge or mm -hmm. I should say uh, reform the collective mm -hmm. agreements that we have as a society about mm -hmm. war, about government and the political climate, yeah. all of it? Well, I'll start with this. I mean, what the guides have said is everything that we see we're in agreement to. And that's through vibrational accord. You know, the New Agers like to say, well, I create everything or you've created everything. And the guides that I work with say, well, yes, but there's also a collective that's creating and you're party to mm. the collective agreements that are made. And the collective agreements might be, you know, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what, what, what is good, what is evil, what is anything named. Anything named has been decided upon and we're in agreement to it whatever way we've come to. So we're operating in two different ways, you know, the individual and the individual operates within a collective field and the guides call that an octave of experience. Now, when they talk about frames, it's really a simple teaching. You know, if we're calling everything to us already, and this the guides say is how we create, we're just basically, if I have the belief, here's a simple example, that I'm not good enough. That's the frame that I walk around with. Mm. The purpose of a frame is to fill itself with what it expects to be there. So I'm always calling or calling into manifestation by accord or agreement to what I've chosen and what that belief system is. And it's being confirmed. So the guides say, you know, we're always getting what we expect in a certain way. Mm. And if you think about it, it's like, you know, your friend who says, I always date jerks. Every time she dates another jerk, she gets to pat herself on the back and say, you see, I'm right. So the identity that we hold, you know, which is an idea of who we are, it's not the truth of who we are, is operating with a frame. So that's the simple teaching of frames. When the guides talk about manifestation, they talk about manifestation within the octave. And you, they say high, low, and in between. And they do this thing, and it's an interesting thing, but if you just place your hands one before the next and you just sort of call the energy to you, they say this is how manifestation works. Imagine that you're floating in the ocean on a raft and um, you're calling the current to you as you need it with what you expect. So they'll often do this. I'll let you do this with me and people can do this if they can see this. But say I have the right to be here. I have the right to be here. And now say I'm the only one that has the right to be here. 
I'm the only one who has the right to be here. Now, notice we feel your arms getting heavier. heavier. Your arms Ooh. are getting heavier. Yeah, because it's a lower claim. Ooh. So you see, we can be claiming in low vibration. We can claim anything we like that way. We've been given free will and choice. But what we call to us in low vibration aligns us at that level. Mm -hmm. I have the right to be here seems like a neutral claim. But if you go to a higher one, which is say, and just try this again, everybody has the right to be. Everybody has the right to be. And if you feel your arms getting lighter, mm -hmm. it's a high claim. Mm -hmm. Do you understand this? So what the guides are teaching us to do is aligning to the part of ourselves that aren't operating within the sort of the frame of scarcity or separation mm -hmm. to be able to claim the higher, which benefits everyone. Um, we'll, we'll take a quick break here. But if everyone listening and watching, if you want to write down a few um, – areas of your life or areas of reality that we face as humanity and just write what a lower uh, accord um, take on the subject matter is and then see if you can actually raise it and continue, continue raising it to a higher octave in your interpretation, your perception, the claims that you're making about it, about the people, about the systems, about society. And can they do this exercise as yeah, they're if they wish. testing sure. and trying it's out? It's a bit like muscle testing, actually. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and it works. Yeah, and I think just so you, we aren't just listening, but mm -hmm. we can immediately apply. And then um, we'll come back and we'll talk about cultivating our own intuition. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the teachings in the different books. Welcome back. We are here chatting with Paul Selig and the guides who have decided to make their appearance and we appreciate that. Thanks guides. Um, so I want to break down some of the foundational teachings in mm -hmm. the works and we can even start with I am the word. Uh -huh. What is the word? Well, they say the word is the energy of the creator in action. And they actually brought through an attunement in that book. They brought it through before the book, but the book really is the attunement to it which is really the beginning of this whole process of recognition and realignment to what they say our true nature is, which is the divine self or the true self or the eternal self. Sometimes they call that the Christ or, you know, the inherent divine that seeks realization as and through us. So the word is the energy of the creator in action is really the premise of the book. But they're really speaking in that book and they said it very early on, although I didn't understand it at the time. In the very beginning of the book, they, they, there was this phrase, the Christ in man or humanity is an event that happens. And I thought that they were speaking, you know, about becoming a little more spiritual or perhaps a little kinder, a little more evolved. I didn't really understand what the agenda was, which really was manifestation of our true nature, you know, mm -hmm. at the cost of the old. You know, and as I said, this isn't a terribly convenient teaching. This isn't about self-improvement. It's not about getting better at this or becoming more spiritual. It's about realizing the divine that expresses as all things. And the very first attunement, um, which was, again, very physical, and it still is because I do it in pretty much every workshop. The guides mm. come through and they bring it through for everybody. They'd have people claim, I am word through my body, word I am word. I am word through my vibration, word I am word, I am word through my knowing of myself as word. And what they're really doing in this is a reclamation of form as of source, mm -hmm. the energetic structure that we are as of source, the action of the divine as the energetic field, and identity. 
And it's the reframing of identity that's really the big one because, you know, we think we're who we think we are, you know, at the cost of who we might be beyond that. And you're actually speaking to the literal um, power within the word itself um, and the vibrational resonance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those who haven't really heard the word attunement before, it's, yeah, it's actually like taking out a, a, a... Tuning, Tuning yeah, and um, Mm -hmm. getting yourself back in alignment. Yeah, it's physical. I mean, this is how the guides have described the attunements. They say we're all radios. We're always in broadcast. Our broadcast is our consciousness. And they work with language, which they say is encoded. So if you've studied Reiki or something like that, your teacher might hold your hands and attune you to be able to transmit that energy. With these attunements, they're done through spoken word. And it's the language itself that supports the shift in the energetic field. So they say what they're doing with us is attuning the radios that we are to play the higher broadcast, which has always been there, Mm -hmm. but we haven't known that we could play it. It's really that simple. And for most people, it's a a somewhat physical experience because the energy, again, is palpable. You Mm -hmm. can feel you know, the resonance of it, um, you know, through the language. But the language is there. Once you've been attuned, you're always attuned and can always work with them. The books themselves are attunements. And when the first book was published and there was no press on that book at all, nobody knew what was coming. People found it and the reviews started coming in and people were saying, I'm reading this book and my body's vibrating. I'm reading this book and I'm seeing energy fields. My favorite was I'm reading this book and my husband is changing, you know, so people were having (laughs) their own experiences with this stuff. Wow. And then following I Am The Word was uh, the book of love and creation. Yeah. The book of love and creation is in many ways a manual and it is the book that really addresses how we develop our clairsentience and our clairvoyance and how we begin to work practically with the energy of the word. It's the one book that after I sat in the recording studio and did the audiobook, I've actually never looked at it again. And a lot of people, it's their favorite book. Hmm. It was, it's 500 pages. Oh my, what? And that was 500 pages in, in manuscript form that I had to sit there and speak and then type. Oh my gosh. So, and then speak it again in, in a recording studio. I was so happy never to look at it again. But it's quite a <laughs> wonderful book. And it's, it's, so you're saying it's actually about embodiment. It's it the is, incarnation. It's the beginning of that, mm-hmm. yes. All of the books are speaking to that, but that's when they start to get into that directly. Wow. And then following that, we have the book of knowing and worth. Uh-huh. Now, um, this might not be the right uh, – I might not be thinking of the right work, but I did hear you speak in a workshop about um, – or the guides came through and presented the – problematic nature of original sin oh boy yeah that probably wasn't me <laughs> okay that was more them yeah and in essentially what i remember was they were saying you got to check into that if you're operating from if you're starting at a point of brokenness like how yeah. are you ever going to recognize your divine uh-huh. nature yeah. um that seems to correspond with the book of knowing Very and worth. so yeah i mean we don't feel that we've had permission to do this at all. And the book of knowing and worth is really addressing that, you know, the inherent worth that everyone holds as of source. They say, you know, we're always ordering off of the menu of what we think we're allowed to have. It doesn't occur to us to order things that are off the menu. Mm-hmm. And the realization of the true self is probably certainly wasn't on mine, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're sort of overcoming our negation of our own divinity in that book. And I guess original sin is 
where much of that seems to come from as a concept. Right. And we I, I won't make you <laughs> summarize everything because that's for us to do our own work and check out the text for ourselves. Um, you, you do have the Book of Mastery, the Book yeah. of Truth, the Book of Freedom, and that's sort of a release from doctrine and dogma, which is, was yeah. so truly liberating. Um, so it was, you know, mission accomplished in, in my yeah. life for sure. Yeah. And I'm so appreciative. And then you have a book, uh, Beyond the Known. And then the next one coming up is alchemy, correct? Is, yeah. um, without skipping too far ahead through things that we don't yet understand, what what can we expect from alchemy? Oh, Do you know? <laughs> yeah, I lived through it. Mm. You know, it's the book that I actually sometimes think should be published with a warning. Um, <laughs> Beyond the Known Realization is the teaching of the upper room. And it's the level they say if this is the octave we're all arrived, we're all abiding in this shared collective thing. The book of freedom is what gives us permission to move beyond that, mm. and to move beyond the rules and the expectations. They say it's as if there's a false ceiling, and you had to punch the hole through the ceiling to see what exists beyond it. So realization, the last book, is the one that speaks to the upper room and the teaching of the upper room and how to lift things to it. Alchemy is really the process one undergoes between floors, between okay. octaves. It's sort of what happens, if I understand it, when the mask that we've self-identified through begins to loosen and come apart, how to attend to what is present and seen, mm. what the mask has been hiding. Um, it's also the teaching of transmutation, for lack of a better word, and how consciousness impacts matter. Um, and they've been talking about this for some time, and it's farther out than I ever thought that they would get, and I was very resistant to the teachings when they came through. But they say that, you know, how you hold anything in consciousness informs the thing you hold. Sure. You know, and the idea of lifting to the upper room is the, the is simply the action of the realization of the inherent divine and calling it into manifestation. They say the kingdom is brought into manifestation through realization and vibrational accord. Mm. And so it's really very much about that process. Um, I'm going to ask them how sure. they want to describe alchemy because I haven't really begun speaking about that book publicly and I don't know okay. how they want to speak. We'd like to speak to this. We would like to speak to this. It's our interview as well. They're saying it's our interview as well if we are allowed to speak, if we are allowed to speak, the teaching of, of alchemy. The teaching of alchemy is remembering is the teaching of remembering. Remembering is always so. Remembering what is always so at the cost of the lie, at the cost of the lie or the belief in separation or the belief in separation becomes so aligned to that you have become so aligned to to become the Level. To become liberated at this level is to manifest as the true self, is to manifest as the true self, the claim of the true self, the claim of the true self and manifestation in manifestation. I've come, I've come, I've come, I have come, I have come, I have come, claims a new world into being, claims a new world into being. That is the action of these texts. That is the action of these texts. Each individual, each individual in her alignment, in her alignment becomes the gateway, becomes the gateway or the portal, if you prefer, or the portal if you prefer, to the higher octave, to the higher octave that she is aligned to, that she has aligned to in the gift she brings to the world and the gift she brings to the world through nature of her presence and being, through nature of her presence and being, is the kingdom, is the kingdom, or the manifestation of the divine all things, of the divine in all things, period. Hmm. To kind of piggyback on that and then slightly pivot, uh -huh. um, 
the concept of spiritual bypassing comes yeah. to mind mm-hmm. um, because we often get so uh, obsessed about living neck up and mm-hmm. sort of uh, denying the painful feelings, unresolved mm-hmm. wounds, developmental needs. and But also we are co-creators yeah. of this reality. And therefore, I'm sometimes concerned about people spiritually bypassing. Sure. And um, I would be interested to hear what the guides have to say or what you have to say in regards to advocacy and activism, knowing mm-hmm. until the world is equitable and accessible yeah. for everyone, um, I'm not sure I want all of us to take off to, to 12D um, yeah. and leave folks behind. I don't think that's how it works at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel that this is a teaching of spiritual bypassing at all. In fact, it's a teaching of great accountability. Yes. Because they say you can't lift anything to the upper room that you're denying. Mm-hmm. You can't you know, I mean, the idea that you can't be the light and hold another in darkness isn't about, you know, saying that others are not accountable for their actions. It is a teaching of forgiveness, but that means something a bit different. We don't forgive for the other person. We forgive to unbind ourselves to what we've created mm. that's expressing in a lower field. So in the Book of Truth, um, which I think was channeled about three years ago and before a lot of the, the current you know, presidential administration, before a lot of things happened, the guides say what's about – they said what's about to happen is that everything that's been buried is about to be reclaimed and reseen. Mm. And that means what's been hidden five weeks ago or 5,000 years ago, it's all going to be coming to the surface. And they've said, you know, it, you're not doing this to be in recrimination or to be in blame or to be in shame. You're doing this because nothing that's held from the light can be healed. So it has to be exhumed or seen in order to be renowned or recognized in a new way. So recognizing something like oppression or suffering is not to frame it or claim it at a low resonance, but to allow it to be brought to light. Exactly. And then you can transform it. But mm. you can't transform what you're pretending isn't there. Right. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, the guides say, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. It's one of their most consistent teachings. And they say, look at every choice you've ever made in fear and see what it got you, which is more of the same. Mm. They also say, you know, we're accountable to our acts. Um, everybody is, but we are not our acts, which is a whole other thing. So the idea that you can't lift the evil man to the upper room, which is something they do teach, doesn't mean you're saying it's okay to do really shitty things. But it is saying you have to realize the inherent divine in the human being because nobody is redeemed through damnation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we live in a culture that likes to damn. Mm -hmm. You know, we still like to have our version of the town square where we judge and hang and then feel absolved. And I don't know if that's how our world changes. Um, It's a very compassionate teaching, but it's not – I'm going to say it's not it's not it's not an easy teaching, you know, when I, the the book of mastery was being channeled. Um I had right before that I had a life that I was very happy with. I had my academic appointments, I had this great little dog who traveled all over with mm-hmm. me. The books were doing fine. Um I loved my apartment. Um I was skinny. I had everything I wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. And within about 2 months 
Um, the dog died. The apartment building got sold. I threw my back out. I couldn't walk. I got slandered. It was like everything at once. And I went, what the hell is this? And that's when the guy started dictating the next book. And one of the simplest teachings was, well, you know, you can't be a victim and a master at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You know, mm. and that everything that we encounter is an opportunity to learn or can be framed as such. Now, when I was a young guy and I was, you know, 30 years old and my friends were dying of AIDS all around me, I went and volunteered at this place called the Manhattan Center for Living, you know, and that's what I did. I had friends that were marching in the streets with ACT UP and there were very different ways of responding to a real crisis and they're just different ways and I think we're always attending to our world at the level of consciousness we hold. But the guides speak to social action so directly in their teachings at this point. And it's one of the only things that I ever hear outrage from them about. And I don't know if they ever feel outrage or they just know how to communicate, to communicate the feeling. But finally, the outrage is how, is how we treat one another and how we let some go hungry and the inequity that we enable through fear. And that the cultures that we operate through tend to make it okay to deny some, you know. And it's not possible. I mean, the guides say, you know, the, the, the wealthy man and the beggar are both learning lessons of prosperity or abundance in very different ways. And it's we who make one better than the other. There are different ways to learn. But if you see somebody who needs food, feed them. Mm-hmm. You know, they do say we're our brother's keeper mm -hmm. and that we are accountable to that and we are accountable to that culturally as well. Now, if all if this teaching was disseminated perfectly to every mm -hmm. being and everyone understood it and stepped into this, what mm -hmm. would that realized world look like? Have they given you a I hope it's the visual? next book. No, no. And I don't know that it happens in my lifetime, I understand what's happening now is in some ways a reckoning. Mm -hmm. And the guide said in the first book, a reckoning is a facing of the self and all of one's creations. And what's been created in fear needs to be recreated in a higher way. And that includes economic systems and religion and government. I mean, everything is, is teetering. Mm -hmm. in some ways. And they do say, you know, the roof in some cases can only be repaired for so long. Sometimes the building needs to be raised and rebuilt and, and, and on firmament and on, 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 a, on a more solid foundation. Mm -hmm. So I understand that this is a time of change. And I also understand it's a time of enormous potential, enormous potential. People are waking up. And in some cases, I suspect people are waking up because the things that we thought would save us aren't saving us anymore. We're right. looking, and I'm not saying looking to religion. I also, I'm sort of speaking to how we treat one another mm -hmm. and what we aspire to. Yeah, even just American exceptionalism and consumerism. And All that stuff, Materialism, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that leads us to... Um, you know, I, I can imagine people listening are are eager to read the works mm -hmm. um, as well as start trying out some of these attunements. Um, how, if we're wanting to pursue a more spiritual path um, or cultivate some of this awareness beyond mm -hmm. what we currently have and practice, where do we begin? Well, I think it depends on who you are and what you're called to. I mean, the work that comes through me isn't for everybody and I don't expect it to be, you know. I somebody who didn't even believe in channeling, you know, and now I'm doing it and I'm 
I'm still reeling from that, <laughs> truthfully. Um, I think that if anybody wants to begin to have a spiritual life, one need only ask for it. I think the aspect of being, of self, that is primed and made for that will respond. Mm. That was the case for me, really, you know, and it's continued to be. And I think we do get to ask. You see, nothing, the guides say nothing can be claimed until it's first a potential. You know, that's the first, that's the first stage of manifestation. You can't claim anything that you think is impossible. And so if it is a possibility that we can know whatever you want to call God or source in some way, even if it's just in how we perceive the person beside us, mm -hmm. that's radical for me going from atheism, for lack of a better word, or, or serious agnosticism to a spiritual life was like moving from one planet to another. Yeah, and that sure. nothing was what I thought it was. Yeah. So I say ask. Um, well, I'm going to go to the guides. The first step is to say it's possible. The first step is to say it's possible. The second step is to say I'm allowed to have this. I am allowed to have this. I'm just going to say it's mine. And the third step is to say it's mine as I choose it, as I choose. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. You make it much harder. You make it much harder. There is nothing will tell you this to you. There is no book that will say this to you. You get to decide. You get to decide who you are, who you are, and what you can have, and what you can have, and if it can indeed be yours, and if it can indeed be yours. This is the gift of choice. This is the gift of choice. You want this, please choose it. If you want this, please choose. You will find your way. You will find your way and indeed be met along the way and indeed be met along the way as all will be, as all will be, period. Mm. period. That's beautiful. Um, let me check here and see if there's anything that we want to cover, but I, I do think that we've touched on a lot of different topics. Um, I have sort of an offshoot question. Uh -huh. Given the guides are existing somewhere uh, that we aren't able to see in this room right mm -hmm. now, what is your or their take on reincarnation then? <laughs> I hear they, they speak to it. They don't go at length. They say, yes, it's true. And we do have these other experiences and it's all opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. That's really how I see it. Um, do they Were want they to teach you now? Physical form yeah, at some, some point. They say some have been, some have not. Mm. You know, and they they were a little cagey about it at the beginning. I found, you know, because these these are the questions. You know, who are you? And they said we are teachers. And my favorite answer was, we are who you become when you know who you are. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. That's so tender. It's loving, yeah. Wow. You know, and they brought through a name, and it's the name that I'd heard for years. The first name I was given was the priest, and then the high priest, and then the name Melchizedek, mm. you know, which is a priesthood, and it's an old one. But, you know, I don't get attached to the names, and I, right. the problem I have with the names is people do get attached to them, and and they you look know. at symbology and they – Exactly. And it's, you know, it's the teaching. The guides – I call them the guides because my ex, when my ex found out I could do this, used to say, ask the guides this, ask the guides that. That's why they're called the guides <laughs> and they don't seem to object at all. You That's know, so I don't funny. think it matters. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate the guides in whatever form they decide to come through. Mm -hmm. And I do actually love that – it, it seems as though they don't want us to be distracted or enamored by um, some of the en enchantment that comes with the spiritual um, journey. Yeah. And, um, you know, mysticism is mysterious enough and there's mm -hmm. beauty in the ordinary and yeah. the mundane and seeing the divine in the mundane. Yeah. 
Um, and I think if we start trying to to make it more woo-woo than necessary, we actually miss the opportunity to see new levels of beauty in um, simplicity and in, in the small stuff. Completely agree. Yeah. You know, the woo-woo stuff, I mean, it's, it's exciting <laughs> it's at the beginning. And then sure. you kind of realize that it's just a, it's, it's a way in the doorway. When mm-hmm. I was new into this work, I used to hear things um, in New York City where I live. I'd hear things, this is before I was public with my work at all. I'd hear things like there's a, there's a, an Archangel Michael channeling in Brooklyn, but you really got to go to the Upper West Side and hear Gabriel. That's the hot <laughs> one. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. You know, it's, it's spiritual materialism. Mm-hmm. And there's no real place for that there. I The moment somebody sort of announces themselves as enlightened, I tend to get a little cautious I tend to think that those people who are fully realized probably aren't talking about it. They're right. just being it. Right. And that's plenty. And you'll feel it too in their presence. Yeah. And that's what I, I most look forward to is um, examining the fruit of my own life and uh-huh. the transformation where I'm able to actually experience firsthand a different interaction with someone right in front of me. Um, and, and they have a different palpable experience of who I am compared to five years ago, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so nice because then you're, you're, you're walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Um, and energy really does go before us anyway. We, we can say whatever we want, but you can feel you can feel where someone's at yeah. um, if, you, if you tune in. So um, for, for everyone who wants to have more of a one-on-one with you, I know you do a lot of live events and workshops. Mm-hmm. Do you have any coming up? All over, yeah. Mm. I'm in L.A. this week on Saturday at Den Meditation. Mm-hmm. I'm at the Esalen Institute for a week um, right before the holidays. Then I'm in... Costa Rica. I'm in I'm in Houston and Austin. But I have there's a calendar on my website. I'm all Perfect. over the place, and that's just my name, paulselig.com, S-E-L-I-G.com. Great. And I'll add the information if people mm-hmm. want to sign up. I can add everything into the show notes. So make sure you check those out. Are there any final teachings or things you feel are uh, not yet covered that need to be said? I think they'd like to attune if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, and this is one of the primary attunements that they work with. They're saying we will do it, et cetera, so they wish. They're saying say this after us if you wish. I know who I am in truth. I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know how I serve in truth. I know how I serve in truth. I am free. 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 When you claim these words, you are claiming what is always true. The true self knows who she is. The true self knows who she is, what she is in meditation, what she is in manifestation and how she serves. And how she serves is her true expression, is her true expression. When you claim these words, when you claim these words, you align to these aspects of self. You align to these aspects of self that will come to fruition. They will come to fruition as you align to them, as you align to them, period. And they're saying period. <sighs> Well, everyone listening and watching, let's take a deep breath. (laughs) There's a lot to digest, a lot to unpack. And, you know, the beauty is you get to rewind, replay and listen over and over and over as many times as you'd like. And um, I think it's so funny that uh, the guides led the attunement as they did exactly what I would normally be doing on the episode. Um, So I'm, I'm thankful that they took over. And that means you can use those as your mantras and your affirmations for the week and for the rest of your life. I mean, this is a a beautiful and powerful way of aligning yourself daily. It could be something you write on your mirror. It could be an alarm that you set on your phone. I actually have... um, 
chalk paint on my refrigerator and it's written on my freezer. And uh, it's nice to just pass by and have that reminder because um, sometimes we need it. There are a lot of distractions and, and just other programming that we've grown up with uh, that we, we get to unpack. And these are super helpful. So thank you so much for being here. Um, I appreciate your time. Thank you guides, <laughs> wherever and however and whoever you are. Um, and uh, if you have a second, make sure you rate and review the podcast and click subscribe so you can tune in to next week's episode and i'll catch you then this is simplexity it's anything but small talk i'm allison thank you paul see you next week peace thank you for listening to simplexity i am so glad to be having these conversations with you all it would mean so much if you took a second to rate and review this podcast and if you haven't already click subscribe to be first to hear each week's episode i'm allison stoner signing off on simplexity it's anything but small talk peace